suddenly I was looking at this house we wanted to buy and the thought of having another baby. And I was thinking, this is, this is possible. I think, I think I'm going to be able to help us make this happen. And that feeling of having that kind of agency over your life and having that confidence that you can make the future you want happen was incredible. I had really never felt that, not about my whole life. Professionally, I'd been pretty confident in my career, but I had never felt that about my ability to make the future I want come to life. And that was incredible. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle and welcome back to the show. I have what I consider to be an important subject that we're covering today, and that is your relationship as a woman to your money and to your ability to invest and grow it and really own your power by owning your money story. Joining us to have an interesting conversation about money is Jennifer Barrett, who's the Chief Education Officer at Acorns, which is a financial wellness app with more than 8.2 million users. Now, Jennifer has a unique perspective on the subject. She's the co-author of two personal finance books and is currently working on a book about women in breadwinning called Think Like a Breadwinner, which comes out in April of 2021. And I loved this concept of thinking like a breadwinner. We've all heard the term, she's the breadwinner in the family or he's the breadwinner in the family. But this conversation goes deep on how to adopt a breadwinner mindset, why it's important as a woman to be thinking this way and what the steps are that you can take towards owning your financial freedom. This episode is not to be considered financial advice. It is really for informational purposes only. And all of the show notes can be found over at thegoodlifecoach.com forward slash 105. Just to tell you a little bit more about Jennifer before we jump into the show, prior to her working at Acorn, she held various management roles in media, including personal finance editor at CNBC and Senior Vice President and Editor-in-Chief at Daily Worth, which is a financial media company targeting women. She's a longtime financial literacy advocate and award-winning journalist, and Jennifer began her financial journalism career covering foreign exchange for the Wall Street Journal and spent seven years at Newsweek. She's written for several national publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Worth, and Money. This is a great conversation. I'm so excited to share it with you. I hope you'll share it with a friend if you gain value from the episode. So let's get into the show. Welcome, Jen. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have this conversation. We're going to be talking about how to think like a breadwinner. And I love covering for women in particular, owning their money story, really embracing and being very mindful about how they think about earning, saving, all things to do with money. So I'm so excited that you're here today. Um, Jen, I know you're currently the chief 
Education Officer at Acorns, which is a financial wellness app with more than 8.2 million users. And before Acorns, you held various management roles in media, including personal finance editor at CNBC and senior vice president and editor-in-chief at Daily Worth. Um, What led you into the world of writing and educating about finance? Sure. Well, I, as a kid, I think um, I was always very curious and my, my mom, I think, nudged me quite early on to <laughs> pursue a career in journalism. Um, so I knew pretty early on that that's what I wanted to do and started as a general assignment reporter. But then I got a job at Dow Jones to get me to New York, <laughs> essentially. Um, <laughs> and it was covering foreign exchange, which I trust me had never done <laughs> before. I actually, wow. I bought myself a book. I started reading up on it. And I was um, underneath another woman who wrote the Daily Foreign Exchange column for the Wall Street Journal. So she was sort of bringing me up to speed. But she got in a fight with a with our editor a few months in mm. and quit in a huff during lunch. <laughs> and so mm. I was immediately promoted, <laughs> uh, moved into her spot and ended up taking over the column. So that was kind of, um, <laughs> they just threw me right in. And so that was my first real job covering finance. And that was pretty, you know, I was pretty deep into the financial world with that job, spending a lot of time with traders, um, you know, and, and financial advisors. And from there, I started to get an interest at that point, I think, just in the world of finance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what really drew me to covering finance and, um, you know, for most of my career, after I left um, the journal, I worked at Newsweek, NBC, her CNBC, you know, a couple of places that you'd mentioned. Um, and I ended up moving between health and personal finance for most of my career. And Mm. I think what really attracted me to those beats is that each of them have such a profound impact on our quality of life, right? And we can't control everything that happens to our financial or our physical health, but, um, but by educating ourselves, we can actually make informed choices that set us up, you know, to be in the best shape we can be financially and physically. And so as a journalist, I saw those two areas as, as places where I could have a real impact by providing people with information and tips and tools, um, you know, and I, I feel like I have I could have a really mini- meaningful impact on on people's lives in those areas, and and you know, and in mine too. I mean, I think I I wanted to learn more about managing money myself, and this was a way to do that and get paid for it. So <laughs> that that was part of the attraction too. I think that's awesome. A win win there because you were kind of learning as you went and then educating and helping other women and men probably was right. Yeah. It was, yeah, as you went along. Now, you've written a book that's coming out in April of 2021 called Think Like a Breadwinner. And I love this concept, breadwinner. And I saw your um, TED talk, which honestly intrigued me because I'd never really thought about the concept of be, being a breadwinner. I feel like my parents did a really good job instilling within me the importance of saving and Mm -hmm. um, being responsible with money. And I feel like I did a pretty good job of it. But this distinction of being a breadwinner, I think is an important one because mindset is something we talk a lot about on the show. And Mm -hmm. the mindset of a breadwinner, I think there's a distinction of thinking that way, you know, versus just making money. Can you talk more about this? Sure. Um, I think that's at the core of, of the book um, is, is having a breadwinner mindset. And um, I came to that conclusion myself um, as I had a wake-up call of my own and had always 
I think like a lot of women had considered myself to be an independent woman. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a successful career at a news magazine. I was making a a decent salary. Um, You know, at that point I was married, I was paying half the bills, half the rent, um, you know, and, and had a little bit in savings and a little 401k. And I actually thought I was doing pretty well. Mm. Um, all things considered, you know, I really, I really thought that I had made good choices. And I remember our son was about 18 months old. And I just remember he was getting up a lot in the night. And there was one night in particular when I jumped up, you know, to pull him out of his crib. And his crib is like a few feet from our bed at that point. And I'm pacing the floor. And I'm looking around and it, it just hits me that we are in um, a completely unsustainable situation. We are in a one bedroom apartment rental, sharing our only bedroom with our 18 month old toddler. Uh, my, my husband's working from home. He's using our bedroom as a home office. Mm. Um, and it, it just hit me, I think like a ton of bricks that we couldn't continue that way for much longer. And I realized in that moment that I remember sort of asking myself, how is this possible you know, that I am in a situation where some of the things that matter most to me in the world are at stake. Mm. You know, I couldn't see how we could afford to have another child. I couldn't see how we could afford to buy a place or maybe even move into a bigger place in New York in the city that we loved, where we built friendships and relationships, where we worked, where we had put down roots. And all of that was at stake. And I, I realized that I had been sort of subconsciously thinking that my husband would be the one mm. to get, you know, the raise, the better paying job, um, so that we could have all those things and, um, hadn't really faced the reality that, you know, he had been earning a lot more when we first moved in together, but then had been laid off and was sort of getting back on his feet and still was earning more than me, but not much. Mm. And what I'd never done was sort of ask myself, what am I doing <laughs> to bring us closer mm. to that future? Um, and that was a real shock to me because at the time, you know, I, I really felt like I had been making good decisions. And then I looked at the choices I'd been making my making with my money through a new lens. And I thought, wow, you know, I have almost a thousand dollars of credit card debt. Mm. I don't think I even had that much in savings mm. at the time. You know, I had a small 401k. I was, I was contributing the default amount, which is probably the smallest amount. Hadn't even occurred to me to do the calculations to see if that would be enough to support me in retirement. Um, and I realized that my whole definition of independent was, was wrong, was faulty. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, that true independence isn't being able to pay half the bills right now or sort of stay afloat right now. Um, true independence is being able to provide for yourself now and in the future and to provide yourself with the life that you want. Mm-hmm. And if you're not making money choices from that place, you, you can end up finding yourself in, in the same situation I was in that night, which is, oh my God, um, I might not be able to have some of the things in my life that I really want. Or, or worse, you may find yourself in a really bad situation where you're forced to make choices you don't want to make um, because you feel like you can't afford to make a different choice. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that was a giant wake-up call. And once I started really looking back at the choices I made, Um, And kind of tracking it back to my childhood because my parents were really well-intentioned and tried to pass on, um, you know, good advice around money. Mm. Um, I I realized that what it came down to was that I I was basing all my money choices on the assumption 
that I would get married and that my husband would earn more and that he would make enough to sort of take care of the big stuff because that's what I'd observed in my own parents' marriage. Um, And I started to wonder, wow, what if I had been raised instead to think that I would be financially responsible for myself for life and probably a family too? What if I actually had believed that when I graduated from college? How would that have changed the choices I made? And as I started thinking about it, I thought that would have a profound effect on the choices I made. I would be in a very, very different place. And so I I set out and started interviewing women who had been raised that way, Mm -hmm. sometimes inadvertently. Um, because, you know, they saw what had happened with their own mom, for example. Um, and, and it, and it was true, (laughs) you know, as I met women who had sort of, for whatever reason, been raised to think more like a breadwinner, their outcomes were not surprisingly significantly better than those who had not been raised to think that way. And I realized that this, this is really critical, um, for women, both in having the lives that we want, but also if we're ever going to close the wage gap the wealth gap, even the leadership gap, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that will never happen until women believe that they are, you know, financially can be financially responsible for themselves, can provide the lives that they want for themselves financially. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's my, I will get off my pedestal. Are you kidding, Jen? This is like, at one point I kind of got goosebumps. I was like, wow, this is, this is so profound and so important and so timely. It's so this message. And I'm so glad you've written this book to get it out even more broadly because it's true. Watching a lot of us, most, many of us grew up in these traditional models. And even if the mother, you know, contributed in her way, oftentimes we were seeing the father as the breadwinner. That was in Mm -hmm. fact the case. My parents retired at 58. Um, But yeah, God bless. Well, that was a (laughs) hundred hours a week of work with my dad and a goal and a vision. Like I said, they're really good at, you know, planning and stuff. But my mom had a very significant role in that. But I think my perception was always that it was my dad. But without her and what she did, honestly, they couldn't have met that goal because she had to be good at other aspects of it. But I think what you said about a woman graduating from college and having a different perception and a different mindset about how she's going to approach her money and being able to be that breadwinner is so empowering. So what were, you said you interviewed some women, but what were the shifts? Because you had that awareness, right? There you were looking at your 18-month-year-old son. You yep. knew you might want another child. You didn't, you had a little, you had some debt, you know, not much savings or maybe no savings. So what did you start doing to empower yourself to make that shift? Sure. I think that the first thing that I did was I sat down and I wrote out, Um, kind of a vision for the future. I wrote out Mm. a description of the home I wanted to have. I I tried to imagine myself a few years in the future because I wanted to get crystal clear on what I was saving for, investing for, all the efforts I knew I was going to have to make and the sacrifices I was going to have to make. I really wanted to get so clear on why Mm. I was doing these things. That was the first thing. And then I priced it out. And, you know, I felt all empowered when I, when I created this vision and I was all excited about this. And then I had a couple reality checks. I, I priced out my vision and uh, had a little breakdown <laughs> when I realized just how big the gap was. That was the biggest reality check for me. And then um, more, more sobering was um, 
I started really thinking about, wow, I'm not earning enough um, to be able to save the kind of money I'm going to need to save for this. And so that was, I'm, I, I thought I'm going to have to make some tough choices here. And then not long after, uh, perhaps serendipitously, hmm. I learned that um, <laughs> I had never negotiated my salary. I, I hadn't negotiated the job offer. I had been there for almost seven years at this magazine. I had never negotiated my promotions, the, the raises that I got. Um, and I found out that someone had been hired in a role that was similar to mine, mm -hmm. um, had a couple more years experience and was making 50% more than I was. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. What a gift you found out though. What a gift. Oh, I don't right? yeah. Well, it didn't feel like it at the time, but it was totally, in retrospect. Totally. Cause I had an experience like that. So I understand. I think a lot of women have had that moment where they're like, should I ask for more? Oh, I don't know if I want to ask for And then they find out other people are making so much more. And, um, and it, it's, uh, it's really kind of a, an awakening for us. It certainly was for me. It felt like a gut punch at the time because I loved my job so much. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't see how even going to my boss and saying, wow, there's a big gap here. How do we close that? How, <laughs> how we were going to be able to, to get up to that amount. And so, um, Long story short, we had the, the magazine was struggling and they offered um, buyouts or severance packages. And so I volunteered for one. I volunteered for one and I made the decision to invest uh, pretty much the whole amount, which was not insignificant since I'd been there seven years. And I started freelancing immediately. And my goal for myself was if I need the money, I can take it. But Let's see if I can make enough where I don't need to touch that money. And I put all of it into the stock market, mostly wow. in index funds. Yes. Well, it was great, except it was uh, just before the crash. So mm. three months later, my, my no. investment dropped by 50%. No. <laughs> so that was my second, that was the second kind of lesson learned was mm. I freaked out. I thought I had done, you know, made such a smart decision. Um, and then I, I thought I really started to study the market and I made the commitment to leave the money there and not panic and take anything out. So I not only left it there, I continued to put more money into it. Mm -hmm. um, it was one of the best decisions I made in my life. And, um, you know, and a couple things came out of that freelancing, let me learn what my market value was. And I ended up making more than double the wow. following year, um, that I had at Newsweek. And, uh, and then, uh, the market started to come back. And so I, you know, it, all of those things combined and I was saving money and I paid off my debt and it just set me suddenly on a new trajectory. Suddenly I was looking at this house we wanted to buy and the thought of having another baby. And I was thinking, this is, this is possible. I think, I think I'm going to be able to help us make this happen. And that feeling of having that kind of agency over your life mm. and having that confidence that you can make the future you want happen was incredible. I had really never felt that, not about my whole life. Finance, you know, professionally, I'd been pretty confident in my career, but I had never felt that about my ability to make the future I want come to life. And that was incredible. And, and so I really started thinking about how do I, how do I help other women? Like my first, it was my friends, but then thinking more broadly, how do I help other women think like that? Um, and I know I got a little off course here. You asked about other breadwinners and I'm happy to share some of their stories, but, um, no, their stories were no, I meant, I was just curious. Yeah. Right. I mean, just what steps you took, cause somebody's going to listen and think, 
I I want to have that autonomy over my life. I want that too. So I think that was yeah. great. So so maybe you could share, you know, what are some steps? So you were helping your friends and then more mm-hmm. broadly. So what are some of the steps? I mean, you talked about being in the stock market. And if I understand correctly, um, women are more hesitant to put their money, 100%. In, right? Yeah. I've done some research yeah. on this and, uh, and men or tend to be more risk takers, risk takers mm-hmm. and aggressive. And so their portfolios do way better. So can you maybe tell, talk to us a little bit about that, but then we'll go back to some other tips, but maybe this is in fact, one step invest in the market. I don't know. It is. It is absolutely one step. You have to get in the game. Um, I think there are so many misperceptions about investing and particularly investing in the stock market. One that it's like a man's game, uh, one that you need to be trading all the time. Um, and, and that is, you know, has been historically a more male approach has been, you know, we, there's a lot of research out there showing that men tend to trade more frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to take more risk and that can be both good and bad though, I will say, because, um, on the plus side, they tend to put more money into the stock market earlier on. And that is, um, that is a benefit for them. But, you know, Fidelity has done these studies that look at how, uh, women's portfolios compared to men's and women tend to outperform men mm-hmm. in part because we follow a more um, set it and forget it approach mm-hmm. <laughs> where you yeah. invest in a, a wide mix of stocks or, or a handful of funds that invest in a lot of stocks and then we leave it there and we don't trade a lot. So you're saving on trading fees if you know if there are commissions wherever your money is. And you're also not trying to time the market because that's um, that's how people actually, I don't think I need to tell you this, but that's how people lose a lot of money is trying to time when the market's going up or down. Um, and, and that has really never been my strategy. Um, my strategy has been put money into, you know, funds that mirror like the S&P 500, which is a, an index of 500 of the biggest stocks. Mm-hmm. And that traditionally, that index has returned 7% per year. Now it goes up and down every year, but 7% per year is pretty sweet. So I put most of my money at that time in an S&P 500 mm-hmm. index um, because I thought I didn't know as much about the stock market as I do now. And I thought, I just want to put my money into something that mirrors the market pretty broadly. Mm-hmm. And it was easy. Um, and so if you do nothing else, (laughs) I think even just doing that, Mm -hmm. um, can really help your money grow. And, and, and that's, that kind of comes back to the, this idea we have, and that has been perpetuated certainly by the financial services industry, that investing is so complex and you need a professional to do it for you. And you need to be on top of it at all times and, you know, watching it like a hawk and moving money in and out to try and, you know, to try and make more and, and beat the, the, um, the benchmark, which is the, the S&P 500 index. Um, and, I, you know, you really don't need to do that. I think if you just start setting aside some of every single paycheck and putting it into the stock market in a diverse mix of stocks and you just leave it alone, it will grow. And, and really, if someone starts doing that early in their career, and actually, I, I, there's someone in my book, I give a very specific example where she just maxed out her 401k in her first job, not really knowing much about it, just someone said to her, mm-hmm. you know, the employer is matching you 100%. So she yeah. put in as much as she could. She told me that she looked at it the other day, talked to her financial advisor, and her advisor said, if you don't put, she's in her 40s, her advisor said, if you don't put another cent into your 401k, you will still retire a millionaire just off the returns and the compounding 
that your portfolio has had and will have. And that I just thought, my God, how, how amazing is that feeling? I said to her like, how, isn't that a fantastic right now you're mid career and you already have, you don't need to put another dime in your retirement fund and you'll retire a millionaire. Wow. I mean, the, just imagine the freedom that that gives you. It gives you choice. It gives you security. It gives you all of these things. Um, and it enables you to have more freedom in your career too, because you have already set yourself up really nicely from, from the get-go. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's it. Women invest less and later than men and have this perception that we don't invest as well when the research shows otherwise, mm-hmm. that we actually do invest as well. The problem is not a lack of knowledge about investing or a lack of acumen. The problem is that we're just not getting in the game early enough. Mm. That's it. Well, I'm thinking about the current landscape right now. And so obviously, obviously it's an unusual time, but there was a recession back in 2008 too. And so when millions of people are losing their jobs and so many people, you probably know the stats on this. I've read also like 80% of the American public don't have a savings beyond like a week or something. Is that, uh, you you would know what that is better than I would, but how does somebody have that vision? Because, you know, what I heard you said is you wrote your why, right? Mm -hmm. You invested your money. You talked to other women to start reframing your mindset. You Mm -hmm. started um, asking for more. So when you Mm -hmm. freelanced, you, you were asking more of your worth. So these are all great tips, but what do people do when they are, you know, scared, right? Like they are right yeah. now. What what are some strategies we can help them with when it's in an unusual time like now or one of these situations? Sure. I mean, I think if we're just talking about mindset and and not to sound too woo-woo here, but I think for me on almost a daily basis, I have to keep moving my uh, making sure that I'm staying in a place of hope and possibility. Um, because when we're making decisions from a place of fear and survival, um, we're not thinking long-term. We're really thinking very, very short-term. And so as you think about your finances, you want to make sure, first of all, you put this in perspective and know that this is as terrible as this is. And I know, and I'm not trying to minimize the impact that this pandemic has had on people. It's been incredibly painful. And I know women have been hit harder than men have, um, you know, a lot of women dropping out of the workforce because they don't have childcare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- this is, these are really serious concerns to face, but, um, but this pandemic is temporary, right. And, um, you know, and, and it's helpful and it's been helpful for me to try and look past, you know, a year from now, two years from now and not lose track of that, even though, you know, we're in a really stressful, um, unprecedented time. So that, that's a part of it. And the other part is from a, you know, like a more tactical perspective is that um, as much as you can continue to put as much money as you can into savings and into Mm. investing. And I I know, I recognize that that's a challenge if your income has been cut. Um, But I think so many Americans, I just did a piece on this for Forbes is, you know, we saw the savings rate rise earlier this year in April to like unprecedented, Mm. like, record levels um, that we've never seen before. And I, you know, part of that was that there just were less ways to spend your money when we were in lockdown. I think so that automatically (laughs) that 20% that went to entertainment and going out or whatever was, you know, you weren't spending it now. So you had that money to save. But I think the other part of it was that 
Um, you know, when things are really good, and you're right, you know, these surveys show that, you know, depending on which survey you're looking at, it's like 40% of Americans don't have $400 for an unexpected expense or $1,000. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the basic gist of it is that many Americans don't have the savings that, that, that they need. Um, and in order to avert a real crisis, if they have an unexpected expense or lose their job. And I think this pandemic was, um, because it came so suddenly and right in the middle of a, you know, pretty strong economic growth um, and very low unemployment was a real wake up call. Mm. Um, you know, that, that big things can happen, um, completely unexpected expenses can come about or events can come about. And if you don't have a cushion of savings, mm. um, you're in a really, really tough spot. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's an important thing to remember when things get better, because that's when you start seeing the savings rate go back down again mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, we're sort of optimistic by nature, which is great. Um, but the, the best time to be saving is when we're, when we're doing well. Um, so that during these times, if we need to, we can, we can tap that savings and even more so that we tap that savings and not our investments, not our 401ks, which I know some people have been forced to to tap, um, because then we're sort of borrowing from our own futures, Mm -hmm. which, um, you know, which we definitely don't want to do. Totally. And is there a general rule about, you know, you talked about maxing out your 401k if you can, but what about how much do you say out of your paycheck should you put away for savings? I will say this, and I I know already how some people are going to react to this. (laughs) Say it now, I'm excited Because I talked to so many people who said, I just can't afford to save right now, or I just can't afford to invest, really. Mm -hmm. They they may put some in savings, but so many people, I can't afford to invest now. And I say, if if we all just assumed that we were living on 80% of our paycheck and Mm -hmm. saved and invested the rest, we would not, we, we would solve the retirement crisis the wealth gap would, would start to really close because that is the single smartest thing you can do is live on 80 to 90% of your income and save and invest the rest. And you just, you just need to start doing it and get used to it. And the way that I did it initially, because I know this is hard and I know people hear this and they think, you don't understand my situation. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. I don't have any money to spare. And I hear that. And I know um, that it's really painful when you have to make difficult decisions to to be able to set that money aside. When I first started, after my wake-up call, when I first started saving a lot more money because I knew it was the only way to reach our goal, what I did was save more, like a, almost a painful amount. Mm. <laughs> and I told myself, you know what? I'm going to save this much automatically. And that's the other thing is you want to do it automatically. Um, I saved and invested automatically. And I just told myself, look, if you are in a situation where you need to tap that money, you can tap that money. But, you know, if you, if you read behavioral studies, we, by doing so, we kind of work in our favor because we don't want to do it. Once we're saving it, the chances of us actually going back in and pulling money from our savings or lowering the percent that we're mm-hmm. saving is very low. Um, it's, it's just like if you, if you live like in a small apartment, like a 400 square foot apartment, and you have all your stuff in there, and then you move into a bigger apartment, you will just find the stuff to fit it, right? It's sort of the same thing with your income. It's like if you are used to living paycheck to paycheck and spending almost all of your paycheck, even if you get a raise, you will find ways to spend that money in the same situation. Mm -hmm. So you want to, yeah, it's it's the habit. It's not like, oh, when I earn more money, I'll be able to invest. No, you have to develop the habit or that won't happen. You just, and I learned this the hard way. You, You absolutely have to develop the habit. Even if you're just starting with like, 
a hundred bucks a month or something, whatever it is, just automatically start taking some of that money out. And then once you see, oh, wow, I can actually, I can do this and it's not going to have as big an impact on my life as I thought, then, um, then it gives you the confidence too to continue to kind of inch that up every year. Yeah. It's almost like, I'm thinking about playing Monopoly with my brothers growing up. Mm-hmm. I used to um, hide the money underneath. So I wouldn't know exactly <laughs> how much I had, but I knew I was like accumulating and they would never know like that I had so mm-hmm. much, like it was just kind of growing. <laughs> they'd, I love be like, that. they'd be like, you're cheating. I'm like, how am I cheating? I'm just not showing you how much yeah. there's there. But it's almost like if you could approach it that way where you just looked at the 80% as your total... Yes. Yes. From the beginning. Yeah. It's like, then you don't miss, you've just tucked the other way and it's, you know, you know, you don't really think about it. It's there, but you know, if you need it, that's when you like look under the monopoly board. I don't know. Exactly. (laughs) No, it is. And in the meantime, the board's like rising higher and higher. Your pile's growing bigger. (laughs) That's, I used to win all the time. So I I can imagine. See, that's a perfect, (laughs) it's a perfect metaphor. And it's very true. If you put your money into a savings account, especially if it's not at the same bank that you have your checking account in, that just that whatever you can put between you and that money, just the extra layer of hassle increases the chances that you will not touch it. It's just, it's human nature. That's a great tip actually, right? Don't have your checking linked with the savings. Have I do not. Sub- right? Yeah. Cause then you yeah. have to, yeah. I don't actually either. I don't, I don't think I did that consciously, but then you have to really think when you're transferring that money over. Jen, when you started investing your money, you were obviously working in this field, but what advice, like, who do you go see? Do you go to like a Fidelity? Like, how does somebody know like, okay, I want to invest in the S&P. I want to, I want to put some money away. Who do they talk to? Um, I get into this a little bit in my book because I think you could go to any brokerage firm and find, you know, literally you can Google S&P 500 exchange traded fund or S&P 500 fund read about it a little bit, you know, see if it's something you're interested in and, and just pick some things. You really just need to kind of get in the game and put mm-hmm. your money in there and make sure you're investing in a diverse mix. Um, so, you know, if you open a, um, an account with a brokerage firm, certainly you can reach out to them and ask them questions. There's so much information out there though available that I think you can also do a lot of this research yourself. And of course I work for Acorns where we, invest for you. So we, um, and we follow the principle of, um, you know, of, of set it and forget it to some degree where we ask you questions and then we recommend a portfolio, um, in all the portfolios that have stocks, including S and P 500 fund and a range of other Hmm. funds, um, so that your money is pretty well diversified. Um, and I think that's been sort of the appeal, I think for a lot of women who invest in acorns is that we've done a lot of research and we put these together and, and it makes it, it's about as simple as you can get, right? You just invest. We recommend a portfolio. You say yes or no, pick another one or not, and then start putting your money away. And that's that. And you literally should not have to think about it again for a very long time. Um, so there's that option too. So you could either go with a brokerage where you put together your own portfolio, or you can go with you know, Acorns or another brokerage that actually puts together portfolios for you based on your risk tolerance, your timeline, some other factors, and then just go with that. Thank you for, I was actually going to ask you what Acorns, you know, how it specifically worked. I saw you do a post with it. Um, what's the rock's name? Dwayne. Oh, Dwayne Johnson. Yes. <laughs> is he an investor? He's an investor. He is an investor. We also partnered with him on um, a recent campaign around the launch of our, uh, we have a custodial brokerage account that for kids. Parents, yeah, custodians can open for their kids. I love it because we want to educate. I feel like maybe this next generation will 
hopefully be in a different place. I feel like we're sort of a generation and as a, and I'm talking as a Gen Xer where we're really focused on self-actualization. We're trying to carve our own path. Our parents did a lot more sacrificing, not that people aren't still, but it was really, it was a different generation, right? And so we're carving a new model and there aren't that many well, well, people like you actually now, there's more ways to learn how to do this. There just haven't been that many like models to follow, right? Like, yeah. oh yeah, this is how it's done because we haven't lived through that through a whole generation. Yeah. Um, actually, what have you seen with millennials versus Gen X? Any difference with how they manage their money? I'd say not as many as I have thought there would be. So when I started interviewing women for this book, I expected millennials, especially young millennials, I thought that their attitudes would be different. Mm. Um, I thought that they would be more engaged with their finances and more confident around investing. Um, but the numbers actually, we're seeing similar patterns. Um, the numbers really haven't changed that much. In fact, in some cases, there you see higher numbers of millennial women saying in surveys that they prefer to have a male partner earn more, manage the money, make the investment decisions. Um, so I don't think that we have um, cracked it yet for that generation. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons I really actually, when I started working on the book, I thought if this is changing for millennials, then maybe there's not a book to write here. (laughs) Maybe it's just my (laughs) Gen X generation. We had to suffer through this, but, but I really did. I did find that I I think, you know, there's a little bit more awareness um, Mm -hmm. for sure. And particularly professionally, I think that the message certainly for millennial women and and probably for a lot of us, you know, as Gen Xers too, I think was, you know, you can do anything you want to do. You can have a very successful career. And so there's been a lot of focus on that, but we do not put the same kind of focus on building wealth. And that is a huge omission. Completely. I think that's right. There's women earning great salaries, but not really thinking about earning wealth. I love what you just said. Um, You mentioned, did you have the second child? We did. Okay. So what are you doing with your kids? Okay. So what are you doing with your children? Anything in terms of teaching them? Do you have boys and girls, like a boy and a girl? Two boys. Two boys. Okay. Yeah. What are you teaching? I always thought I'd have girls. (laughs) And I was like, it's interesting. I'm doing all this work for women and I've It's very instructive though. Um, I, you know, I, I, um, they are both, they're nine and 13. They are both well aware of acorns. I've set up early accounts for them, custodial mm-hmm. accounts, um, and, and explain to them how they work. Um, early on, we, um, I had them pick a stock that they liked. They picked JetBlue and I invested oh. some money and we sort of tracked how JetBlue is done. Not so well lately, but it'll come back. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so we, I've tried to bake some lessons into that. And then even very young, um, very early on, I would have them when we go to the bodega, you know, like the little store on the corner, um, I would give them some money and have them buy things so that mm. they could sort of see, start to see what things cost. Mm. And then we did, we did some lessons there. We're, we're close to the man that owns the bodega. And so I was working with him one time. We, they, my kids wanted to buy, like, I think it was little gummies that they were selling individually, little gummy packs. And uh, Alex, who's the owner said, Oh, it's a better deal if you get the box of them. And my son was like, Oh, but I just want the one. And I thought, oh, this is such a great moment. So Alex and I, we got the box. Then there was like a smaller box. And then there were the individual packets. Mm. And we we priced it out to the price per packet, <laughs> depending mm. on how you bought it. Totally. And then my sons were like, oh my gosh, you can save so much money if you buy the a box. bigger box of these. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to eat them, it makes sense. So I, it's like little lessons like that that you can think of day to day where something comes up and you think, oh, wait, this is 
there's an opportunity here to sort of teach them, you know, that was like, be a smarter shopper. If you know, you're going to eat eight of these over the next week, buy them now, you'll save this money, but just also paying attention, you know, spending mindfully and paying attention to what you're getting for it and not just picking up one packet because it's next to the, the cash register. Totally. Oh, I love that. (laughs) There are lots of little ways to teach them, but more, you know, overall, I, I think, um, this kind of comes back to what we talked about at the beginning is that as I was working on this book, I, I looked up all this research um, surveys with parents on the way that they talk to their sons and daughters about money. And it's very different. Hmm. So, um, so yeah, so parents are more likely to talk to their sons about um, how to invest, Hmm. how to build credit, um, how to um, set financial goals. And they talk to their daughters more often about budgeting, opening a bank account, spending smartly. And wow. I think, I know it's fascinating and it's more than one survey. Um, at first I thought maybe this is anomaly, an anomaly, but then I realized this actually makes perfect sense mm-hmm. um, because this largely goes back to the division of roles we used to see in households, right? Where the men were the breadwinners, women in charge, women were in charge of the household budget. So the men were responsible for earning the money investing it to build wealth for the family, buying the home, you know, Mm. while the women were responsible for making sure we spent as little as possible, basically like clipping coupons, budgeting and all of that. And so the skills that parents were teaching kids, even now mirror those, you know, they're like teaching women to be budgeters and they're teaching men to be breadwinners. Um, And we need to shift that. Uh, if we're going to change things with this next generation, we need to teach everybody to be breadwinners. We need to teach everyone you know, the basic skills, budgeting, saving, setting financial goals, investing, negotiating, building credit, all of those skills need to be taught to both boys and to girls. Um, And obviously, we're not getting that education usually in school. So a lot of that falls onto the parents to be super conscious of the fact that they share those skills with both their sons and their daughters. That is fascinating. I had no idea that that's, that was the case. That's really fascinating. Well, it it leads me to a question I want to ask you then what piece of advice could you leave the women listening with in regard to how money impacts their power? Really? This is what we're talking about. This is about their power in the world. What let's in terms of shifting that mindset. I mean, there's been so many amazing nuggets today, but this is an important shift they have to make about really owning their power. Yes. Um, I think really what it comes down to is more money equals more choices. Hmm. Um, and we, um, we have sort of this, this funny relationship with, with power, I think, as women, mm-hmm. um, where we're sometimes afraid to own our own power. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we, we, we uh, shrink from that a little bit. And, and it's really time to step into our power. And you can't be empowered if you don't feel pow- empowered financially. You just, you can't be. Um, you, you end up being dependent on other people. You end up making choices that may go against your values um, because you feel like you can't afford to make a different choice. Uh, it really leaves you powerless if you don't have money and you don't have control over your money. Mm. Um, so I, I also think about, you know, there, we still have this kind of, say kind of a mistaken idea about wanting to have a lot of money being selfish you know, and we, we really need to get over this idea that wanting to make a lot of money and to build a lot of wealth is selfish. It's, it's not because we can use that money in ways that have tremendous mm-hmm. positive impact. Yeah. You know, what the, the way I think about it is 
what would it feel like to be able to give money to the causes or the organizations or the candidates that you care about, you know, to know that you helped make a difference in that way and to be able to have that kind of impact. Um, you know, how does it feel to be able to financially support female founded companies that you believe in, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I, I'm in a position where I can do that now. And I, I'm starting to really understand that, um, you know, money buys access, it buys influence, it can have tremendous impact. Mm-hmm. And so I, one of the most important things we can do is to get past this idea that wanting to have a lot of money is selfish yeah. because it, you know, money only really amplifies the qualities that we have to begin with. Yeah. Having a lot of money doesn't make us selfish. If you're someone who cares passionately about social causes now, if you had a million dollars tomorrow, you wouldn't become suddenly selfish. You would take a lot of that money and put that towards those social causes. That's it true. would only amplify you know, the way you're living your life already would amplify the causes, you know, the, the, the work you're doing already. And I think that's a common misconception, but I, I have had the, the joy and the privilege of talking to so many women who are using their money in extraordinary ways to, to help lift, not only help lift all women up, but, but really to, to move so many important causes forward. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's a long way of saying that, um, you know, not only does more money give us more choices individually, but it also gives us the power to have a broader impact socially. Love it. And it's so, so true. Um, you know, I just have to ask quickly though, do you, and this is kind of personal, so, but do you and your husband keep separate accounts? Cause I'm a big fan of that versus the old school way of merging everything like one joint account and then separate Mm -hmm. money or how do you do it? We, right now we have separate accounts, although there's complete kind of transparency. I have a spreadsheet that I update once a month on, mm-hmm. you know, where all the money is and what the balances are. Um, and we're, sh- we're both shared on that so we can track it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that I'm opposed to, we've actually talked many, many times about having one shared account, mm-hmm. but because we've naturally sort of divided the expenses, it hasn't it really hasn't been an issue. And I think if it ever gets to the point where it feels like one person is taking on too much or that we're not having enough conversation around, um, you know, who's covering water, we have some issues there. I think we would join our accounts together, but, um, but right now, no, we just have an understanding of like who's covering what and, you know, and, and are both very transparent about what we're saving for our future. Yeah. I personally think it's a way of feeling empowered too, because I know women who are the breadwinners who ask their husband for permission to go buy shoes because what? Yeah. Cause <laughs> the husband manages the finances. So oh, no. there's a lot oh, of yeah. like, there are a lot of, <laughs> I, and, and it's becoming the trend that women are becoming the breadwinners, but it there's is. still a very so traditional role still happening within the family structure. So it's really, so I'm always like, get your own account, tuck a little yes. bit, your money in there. You know, what if you want to buy him something and it's a surprise, like it shouldn't be so, you shouldn't have to ask for the money you're making. A hundred percent. Anyway. Yeah, no, even if, even if you have shared accounts to have your own, to have an account totally. that's yours is, totally. is really important so that you, you feel some control over totally. how you're spending. I, I'm a huge advocate of that. So I was just curious. Um, yeah. I've loved this conversation so much. Um, Jen, can you leave the women listening today with your three best tips on living a good life? And it can be financially related or general, whatever you feel called to share. That's a lot of pressure. Um, yeah, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say, um, number one is to live your, 
values, mm. um, to be really clear on what those values are. I know um, I used to sort of assume that, that you do that unconsciously, but the exercise of sitting down and really listing out what my top values are was so helpful to me, um, both in, in making financial choices and, and in sort of everyday choices. Um, and I think if you can lay out your values like that, and then also lay out the vision you have for your future, um, that will sort of lay the groundwork for everything else. That's, that determines your incentives for building wealth. Um, so that, that's one. Um, from a financial standpoint, I, I would just give a couple other um, a couple other tips there. One is to know where your dollars are going and to make sure they're bringing you the value that you want. Um, so when you make a choice with your money, any choice, ask yourself, is this bringing me closer to the future that I want or taking me further away? Mm. And I think if you even get in the practice of doing that occasionally, you start to become so much more mindful of, of where your dollars are going. Um, and then the last one um, is also financially related, but I think I love the idea of using every paycheck, seeing every paycheck as an opportunity to be less dependent on your future paychecks. Mm -hmm. So I'll say that again. Yeah. <laughs> to, say to again. Use every paycheck as an opportunity to be less dependent on your future paychecks. Mm. So what do I mean by that? I mean, take as much as you can from every check you have coming in and save and invest it so it can start growing. Um, and, you know, as your investments grow, you become less dependent on your paycheck mm. and you have more freedom. And ultimately, the harder that your money, uh, yeah, the harder that your money is working for you, the less you have to work for your money. And, and that is the place you want to get, right? Mm -hmm. that, is, that is financial freedom. What a beautiful place to end. This has been so enlightening and I'm so grateful for your time today. I know women are going to walk away with so much to think about. I feel like this is one where we'll have detailed show notes anyway, but you'd want to listen to and then go back to it. You know, like I'm, there's so many great takeaways from today. Um, Jen, where can people learn more about your work, whether the acorns part, but also your upcoming book? Sure. I'm launching my website soon at jenniferbarrett.com. But in the meantime, uh, you can find me on Twitter at jbarrettnyc. Um, you can find the page for the book on Penguin Random House, and maybe we can put that link totally. in the notes. Yeah. And then, of course, you can learn more about acorns at acorns.com. Great. Thank you so much for your time. This is such a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, no, I, this, was, this was so great. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you are enjoying these episodes, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player and consider leaving a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. It's how I know what's resonating with you and it helps other women find the show. Thanks as always for tuning in and I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now.